football. You ever been to a game? Even on the way to the games, look, there's flags flying on cars. There's a sea of literally thousands and thousands of people standing to their feet. They're cheering and yelling and jumping up and down. They're high-fiving, hugging. Someone scores a touchdown. And suddenly, like, I people watch when I'm at the game. More than I watch the game, I, I like watching the people at the game. Um, so it's kind of a waste of money. But suddenly somebody scores a touchdown. And in the midst of this exuberant celebration, two men, complete strangers, complete strangers, suddenly find themselves in the midst of each other's embrace. <laughs> and, it's, and it's like this the entire game. I mean, not, not two men uncomfortably hugging, but um, the intensity the intensity and all of this for a bunch of overpaid guys carrying a pigskin ball across a white line. But then I read, I read these passages, this one from Jonathan Edwards. Listen, it says, our external delights, our earthly pleasures, our ambition and our reputation, our human relationships, for all of these things our desires are eager our appetites strong our love warm and affectionate when it comes to these things our hearts are tender and sensitive deeply impressed, easily moved, much concern and greatly engaged we are depressed at our losses and we are excited and joyful about our worldly success and prosperity when it comes to spiritual matters, how dull we feel. How heavy and hard our hearts. We sit and we hear of the infinite length and height and breadth and love of God in Christ Jesus, of his giving of his infinitely dear son, and yet we sit there cold and unmoved. If we are going to be excited about anything, shouldn't it be our spiritual lives? Is there anything more inspiring, more exciting, more lovable, desirable on heaven or on earth than the gospel of Jesus Christ? We should be utterly humbled that we are not more emotionally affected than we are in the church. Oh, I pray. I pray to lead a people who become cleansed of their apathy. I pray to lead a people whose affections are awakened or provoked far more than they are for any of the, the good, not bad things of this life. If only we could see God for who he truly was, who he truly is, as Isaiah did in chapter 6. Turn there with me. I am hesitant tonight because I know this passage is very familiar. But I do pray that God would awaken our affections by his spirit here tonight. 
So read with me as if you've never read this passage before, as if you've never heard it before. We start in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried. And the house was filled with smoke. And said I, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And this brings us to our first truth tonight. We have an indescribably great God. Our God reigns. Verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, 52 years, 52 years he had been king. We are used to a president who is in leadership four years, a max of eight. But 52 years he had been king. For some, if not most, he had been the only king they would have ever known. Some would have been born, had children, um, and died under his leadership. He had been the only king that they would have known. He was, uh, for the majority of his reign, a good, a good king, pridefully stumbled toward the end. Um, but for the most part, he had been a good king. The country and the people of God had done well. Now, he was gone. He was gone. Isaiah looked up and he saw the Lord. When the king was gone, Isaiah looked up and he was able to see the real king, who he was, and he was still on his throne. When Isaiah was able to get his eyes off of man, get his eyes off of the things of this world, he was able to look up and get his eyes on the king. Throughout history, lords have come, lords have gone, kings have, have come, kings have gone, presidents have come, and presidents have gone, but there is one king who remains. He is exalted high, he is lifted up, Isaiah tells us, surrounded by the seraphim, literally means the burning ones. Angels who are ablaze with the adoration of God, continually giving glory and honor and praise to our God. And what is their song selection? Holy, holy, holy. It's as if they're grasping at this, this leash of language, trying to find a word to describe the one with whom they surround. And the only thing that can come out just comes out continually. Holy. Holy, holy, his holiness is terrifying. He is without error. He is perfect. Our God has never had a wrong thought, a wrong motive, never done a wrong deed. Everything in our lives, even the things that hurt or the things that we don't understand or the things that we can't comprehend, those things are right. 
He is without air. But, but not just without air. I mean, in the same way, I mean, kind of in the same way, but a little bit different sense, um, the same things can be said about the angels around him. They are not part of fallen humanity. They are not part of fallen angels. But for him to be holy doesn't just mean he is without air. It means he is without equal. He is completely other, uncomparable, indescribable. Isaiah 40, verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me, or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One? Verse 26. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created these things? He's talking about the stars that bringeth out their host by number. He calleth them all by name. By name. Literally hundreds of billions of stars. And that's, that's in our galaxy. They, they estimate multiple other galaxies with possibly hundreds of billions more stars each, and he knows them all by name. Joe, Samantha, ZXJ, one nine eight niner. I don't know. I don't know. But our God knows. There is not one piece of dust, not one speck of dirt, not one drop of water, not one grain of sand that does not respond to the absolute bidding of our God. God is sovereign. It means he is supreme ruler over all. May it not be said, any one of us in this room, there is not an evident respect for the author of the universe. Sovereign over all nature, over all nations. Turn with me to Isaiah 36. While you're turning there, I would like you to remember the context in which the book of Isaiah is written. Israel is split into two kingdoms under the reign of um, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, Solomon's sons. The southern kingdom existing of uh, Judah and Benjamin. The northern is the, the ten remaining tribes. The northern kingdom has fallen. The Assyrians are on the salt. City after city has fallen, and now they surround Jerusalem. They surround the city with 185 troops, approximately, ready to pulverize the city. Can you, can you imagine being in that city? I mean, hearing, hearing of all the things that they've done, all the cities that they've conquered, all the brutality that's happened. And now you're there, and they're completely surrounded, the entire city, with 185,000 troops. The king, the king is telling them, trust in God. Just trust in God. Listen to what happens. There's a, a Syrian commander, he comes out and he begins to threaten the people of God. Verse 18, he says, beware, lest Hezekiah persuade you, saying the Lord will deliver us. Hath any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvim? And have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who are they among all the gods of these lands that have delivered their land out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Wow. 
Wow, he should not have said that. He should not have said that. He's saying, who is this God that he's going to stand up to us? We are the Assyrians. Who is this God? 37, chapter 37. Look at what God says. Verse 23. God says, whom hath thou reproached and blasphemed? And against whom have thou exalted thy voice? Don't raise your voice to me. He said, he lifted up and lifted up thine eyes on high against the Holy One of Israel. By thy servants thou hast reproached the Lord and hast said, By the multitude of my chariots am I come up to the height of the mountains, to the sides of Lebanon, and I will cut down the tree, the tall cedars thereof, and the choice uh, fir trees thereof. And I will enter into the height of the border, into the forest of his Carmel. I have digged and have drunk water, and the sole of my feet have I dried up the rivers in the besieged places. And God says, hast thou not heard? He said, you ain't heard? You didn't hear long ago? Hast thou not heard how I have done it? And of ancient times that I have formed it? Now I have brought it to pass that thou shouldest lay to waste the defense cities and to ruinous heaps. Therefore, their inhabitants were of small power, and they were dismayed and confounded. They were as the grass of the field, and as the green herb, and as grass on the housetops, and the corn blasted before it grown up. But I know thy abode. He says, I know where you live. And thy going out, and thy coming in, and thy rage against me. And because of thy rage against me, and thy tumult is come up in mine ears, therefore will I put my hook in thy nose, and my bridle in thy lips, and I will turn thee back the way by which thou camest. Ooh, we, them's his fighting words, come get you some. All right, let's see, 37, verse 33, look what happens. Therefore, thus saith the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He shall not come into this city, nor shoot an arrow there, nor come before it with shields, nor cast a bank against it. By the way that he came, the same shall he return. He shall not come into this city, saith the Lord. For I will defend this city, and I will save it for my own sake, and for my servant David's sake. Then the angel of the Lord went forth, and he smote the camp of the Syrians, uh, Syrians, a hundred and fourscore and five thousand. That's 185,000. And when they arose early in the morning, behold, they were all dead corpses. Mark this down. You do not mess with God. God says, Assyria, you are in my hands. I mean, all throughout this book, Egypt, you are in my hands. Judah, you are in my hands. You are all in my hands. And isn't isn't this good news? I mean, really, isn't this good news to know that Kim Jong-un is not king over all? Bashir al-Assad is not king over all. Benjamin Netanyahu is not king over all. David Cameron, Theresa May, Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, Donald Trump will not be king over all. Our God, our God is king over all and is sovereign over all nature and is sovereign over all nations. And we are reminded in Romans 9, sovereign over every one of our lives. Which brings us abruptly 
It was fun. It was fun for a second. <laughs> Brings us abruptly to our second point. We are a sinfully depraved people. What was Isaiah's response to God? It wasn't, it wasn't, wow! It wasn't, ooh-wee! It was, whoa. Whoa. I am ruined. I am undone. Uh, the literal translation means destruction upon me. Woe is me. I am undone. I am ruined. Destruction upon me. And, and we hear this. And we think, isn't, isn't, isn't this a little overdoing it? I mean, destruction, death, ruin upon me. After all, Isaiah's one of the good guys. He was, he was God's man. He was God's prophet. He's one of the good guys. And, and we read that and we think, I, I mean, isn't that overdoing it a little bit? Destruction, really? We look. Oh, how we need this proper understanding of ourselves in the church today. We look throughout scripture and we see these extreme pictures of the the sinfulness of man and the, and the wrath of God. And we're, we're tempted at sometimes to think, doesn't this seem a little overly severe? I mean, remember in Genesis 19? You know, Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, all those people, the entire city. And, and not just that. I mean, Lot and his wife are running away from the city and they're told, don't look back. And as they're, they're running, she, she she takes a glance, one glance, and what happened? Pillar of salt. Evaporated for one glance. Numbers 15, a, a man is caught and he's picking up sticks on the Sabbath. And they bring the matter before God. And what does God say? Stone him. Stone him. Stone to death for picking up sticks. Second Samuel, Uzzah reaches out and he, and he touches the ark to keep it from falling. Struck down dead on the spot. On the spot. It's not, it's not just Old Testament. I mean, it's, it's New Testament too. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. They come in and, and deceive about the offering. Struck dead on the spot. Wife comes in, same. That's, that's going to hurt the high attendance on Sunday. <laughs> People ain't coming back if they're dying in the offering. I mean, we, we hear these things, right? We see these pictures, and, and, and at least, don't we at least wrestle with it a little bit? I mean, isn't this a little overdoing it? I mean, isn't this a little extreme? Struck dead, he was, he was picking up sticks, evaporated for a glance. And, and yes, they lied, but to, to fall dead on the spot? I mean, really? Haven't we done worse? And this is because we have such a man-centered view of sin. We think if, if someone were to lie to us, they, they shouldn't be struck down. If someone were to come and lie to me, I shouldn't be struck down dead. If, if, our, if our kids were to be disobedient, I mean, you may want to, but if your kids were to be disobedient, should they be stoned to death? I mean, no, of course not, right? 
This is when we need to realize it's not about how small or how large the sin is. It's about the greatness of the one who is sinned against. Sin against ISIS? You're, you're, not, you're not really guilty. You sin against, against man? You're guilty. But sin against an infinitely holy God and you are infinitely guilty. Oh, but praise God. That is not the end of the story because we have come to point number three. We serve a scandalously, that is a word by the way, merciful God. See, when somebody receives something that they really don't deserve, that's, that's what a scandal is. And that's what God's forgiveness to us through Jesus Christ, through his death on the cross, that's a scandal. We are undeserving of that. I mean, to think that one day, one day, probably sooner than I realize, I'll be, be standing in a courtroom again. I'll have the greatest prosecuting attorney that has probably ever lived standing across the courtroom and he's hurling all these accusations and he's going to say, what about the time when you lied to your parents about where you were supposed to be? And what about the time you deceived half the church and they all believed that you really loved God so much? And then what about the time when you sold drugs for all those years? You supported your own habits by other people's misery. What about that time? And as I stand there, guilty, 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 as the day is long, the greatest defense attorney that's ever lived will stand up and he will proclaim, I paid that price. I paid that price. And the gavel will slam down, not guilty. That's an amazingly scandalous mercy. And that's what happened to Isaiah in his vision. Verse 6, then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken from the tongs from the altar. And he hath laid it upon my mouth, and he said, Lo, hath this touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Through nothing that he had done, God saw fit to cleanse him of his iniquity. We have an indescribably great God who has looked upon a sinfully depraved people, and he has sent us scandalously merciful savior and as a result we have an indescribably urgent mission the grace of god invokes the surrender of man isaiah 6 verse 8 you got it put it up also i heard the voice of the lord saying whom shall i send and who will go for us then said i hear am i send me before god ever stated what the job was isaiah surrendered Surely this, this, kind of, this kind of scandalous grace invokes more than just the, the raising of a hand. Surely this, this kind of grace invokes more than just the reciting of a prayer. Surely this grace invokes unconditional, urgent surrender of our lives, making this God known wherever he calls. Is there anything more important 
than the representation and the declaration of the glory of God to the ends of the earth. I want to I tell you guys a little story um, that I'm not proud of. I will give you um, one more quote, and, uh, and we're going to ride out. I was, um, I'd been on staff not, not, not long. Um, we'd, done, <laughs> we'd done an all-nighter, and um, it, it turned out pretty cool. Uh, we had like 86 kids come, and um, it was like 20, 24, 26 visitors. So it was, um, it was by all means, it was a good night. I had, um, I had the opportunity to present the gospel couple um, indicated that they accepted Christ, and then, you know, maybe multiple seeds were planted. Um, but for the first time, we had seen, we had seen the room full, and we had seen teenagers and students alike excited. And um, I, went, I went home later that day. I was tired, and um, very tired. I began to have this thought. I said, I, I bet that God sure is glad to have me on his side. I'm going to read to you A.W. Tozer's. Um, it's a section from a book he's written called Knowledge of the Holy. This is from the a section um, is chapter 6. It's called The Self-Sufficiency of God. And here's what he says. This is Almighty God. Just because he is almighty needs no support. The picture of a nervous, uh, ingratiating God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity so lawfully our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy not to say enjoyable to believe that we are necessary to God probably the hardest thought for our natural egotism is to entertain that God does not need our help we commonly represent him as a busy, eager, somewhat frustrated father hurrying about seeking help to carry uh, out his benevolent plan and to bring peace and salvation into the world. Too many missionary appeals are based upon this fancied uh, frustration of an almighty God. An effective speaker can easily excite pity into his listeners. Not only for the heathen, but also for the God who has tried so hard and so long to save them and who has failed for want, for lack of want, for support. I fear that thousands of young persons enter Christian service from no higher motive than to help deliver God from this embarrassing situation his love has gotten him into. And his limited abilities seem unable to get him out of. Add this to a certain degree of commendable uh, idealism and a fair amount of compassion for the underprivileged and you have the true drive behind much Christian activity today. God does not need us. 
to, to even indicate that God needs something would be to hint at his imperfection. God does not need us. Our God loves us so that he allows us to partake in the proclamation of his glory and there has been nothing more fulfilling in my life and in the lives of others I know around me than doing this duty. And it began with an indescribably great God. A sinfully depraved man who experienced the scandalous mercy of God, which invoked unconditional surrender. 